This week we are continuing our series through Matthew, and we are currently in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you recall, kind of roughly where we are right now, is Jesus is currently warning the people about trying to appear overly religious or overly righteous in front of other people just for the sake of looking righteous. And he's hitting on the three big areas in most religions where we often see this, giving, prayer, and fasting. So this week, we are on prayer. And what does Jesus say about righteousness and prayer? So let's just dive right into the passage before we get going too far. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done as secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like the pagans, for they will have, excuse me, for, for they think they will have their herd because they have had many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then this is how you should pray. Our father, everyone say it, everyone say it, everyone knows this one. Our father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then we have this little coda at the end. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, then your, have, then your Father will not forgive your sins. So, the Lord's Prayer. Maybe one of the, if not up there with John 3.16, for like the most famous passages in the entire Bible. Probably one of the earliest passages you learned if you grew up in Sunday school. And I think because of this for me, like I don't use the King James Bible hardly at all now, but growing up, the church I went to did, and this is what I learned it in. So like in my head, I still default to the King James like rendering of this passage. That's just the way I learned it, and I feel like it's the way a lot of people learned it. So most people who normally wouldn't use a lot of thys and thous use it when they recite the Lord's Prayer, which I think is, is, is just a really funny kind of habit we, we've all developed. But we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. There is stuff in this passage before we get to the Lord's Prayer, so let's, let's look at that. Jesus opens by repeating the idea that we are not to be like hypocrites. So what is a hypocrite? Shout out answers. What, what is a hypocrite? Yep, yep, someone who tells someone they can't do it and then goes around and does it. Yeah, yeah. What other, what other ideas, definitions, examples? Emma, yeah. And then does it? Yeah. Someone who says something's not allowed and then does it themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Someone whose words don't match their actions. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Those are all great kind of definitions of what we think of as what a hypocrite is. 
Now, in the first century, hypocrite had a slightly different meaning. In the first century, hypocrite simply meant one who pretends. And its most common use was for actors. It was the word for actor. Someone, you know, stage acting. Because think, think about it, what is acting? Pretending, someone who pretends. So actors were called hypocrites. And not in a negative derogatory sense, just the way we would use the word actor. They were pretending, they were acting. So what does Jesus mean by comparing robust, out loud, over-the-top praying to acting? Well, on one level, I think it hits the, I think I have, oh yeah, I have a terrifying slide of some Greek actors. <laughs> well, on, on the one hand, it hits the physical aspect of it. Because think about movie acting versus stage acting. If you're acting on a stage, everything has to be bigger and louder than normal. Everything has to be exaggerated, right? A little bit? Yeah, so Grace, why don't you come up and, 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 and help me show an example of what I mean. I was gonna bring a little ball and I forgot, so I, I found some Play-Doh here we're, we're gonna use. So, in the real world, if I was just gonna hand Grace this, this ball of Play-Doh, I would, you know, just go, go hand it like that, right? But, but, imagine someone's even a bigger room than this, way, way, way at the back. They're not gonna see that, right? It's gonna be hard. So, how would you hand that to me if you were on a... <laughs> yes, yes, but, but you get the idea, right? You would throw it or you'd be like, go across the whole stage like that, right? You, you would exaggerate your motions. Um, so how would you look sad if you were stage acting? Yeah, you would like, exaggerate, you'd go down, like you would do, whereas most people, when they're actually sad, they're, they're sitting, not moving much, right? So you would do some exaggerated, like up and down, right, right? Perfect, thank you. I'm ready for this time. I got it, perfect. Thank you very much. So it's the idea of bigger than normal. You, that's not how you actually do things because you have to get someone 200 rows back to understand what you're doing. So subtlety kind of goes out the window. So the acting, overacting side is a part of it. But I think there's something deeper going on there. There's another layer to it. At its core, what is acting? It's pretending. It's presenting something you're not. It's going through motions of something you don't necessarily believe in. It, so I, I lived in LA for a number of years. I knew a ton of aspiring actors. Almost everyone you met was an aspiring actor. And some of them hit big. I have a friend who was in the, um, why am I spacing out on it? Zachary Levi, uh, uh, Shazam, who was in Shazam. He, so like, that was awesome. But most of them didn't. But they all shared the same mental understanding that acting was filling some void. Almost every single one of them to a person openly and fully admitted that acting was a way to mask true feelings. If I can get lost in this character, I don't have to wrestle with my own feelings. I can do everything through the guise of this character. For a lot of them, it was a way of seeking approval. If, if I can get up there and be someone else, people will like that someone else. They'll like my stage persona, even if they don't know or like me. They'll like that person. So they were acting as a way to not have to dive or delve into their own feelings, into their own person. It was a way to seek approval by pretending to be someone else. 
So pair those two together. Jesus, where am I at? Ah, yes. Why is Jesus comparing this to hypocr hypocrites to this prayer life? This paints a really sad picture in a way. It presents someone outlandishly performing religious acts, but not believing in them in their heart. If I try hard enough, maybe I'll believe. It's suggesting someone who doesn't feel validated, who doesn't feel loved, so is trying to earn love, trying to earn that approval through their actions. It showcases someone who doesn't really have an intimate relationship with God, so they're trying to trick or bribe God into this relationship through their own actions. All of that is be wrapped up in this idea of don't be like the hypocrites. There's a lot wrapped up in this one word, this one phrase Jesus keeps repeating over and over again. So have that in your head as we move forward through this and even, even in, the, in the next week. So let's dive into the prayer itself. Now, Jesus is not saying that these are the final coda of words, the only words you're allowed to pray. I have met people that that's what they thought. They only pray these few verses. That's, that's all. That, that may sound silly, but it, it happens. What Jesus is doing here is giving a structure of what prayer should look like. Jesus is giving kind of the, the backbone elements that should be in our prayers. And then we fill the rest with what's going on in our lives. Jesus is even giving us the posture to which we should approach prayer and approach God in our prayers. So let's walk through these verses one by one and talk about each of these elements and each of these, we call them petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So start at number one, verse nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here, Jesus is setting up how we are to approach God as loved children. Because remember, the blood of Jesus rightfully and truly brings us into the family of God. It truly makes us adopted children of God. And so that's how we think of coming into it, as a child desperately loved by a father, by a parent. Now, the verb here, hallowed, it's a weird verb, right? We never really use it outside of this verse and maybe like you're standing on hallowed ground, right? Like those are the really the only two times we use this verb in this iteration. But it speaks of the idea of holy, something maintaining its holiness. Some translations take this phrase as, so our Father in heaven, may your reputation be kept holy. May your name be kept holy. And I think that, that's an interesting way to take it because it, that opens up this verse a lot. It gets at the idea of, I want you to maintain this holiness. And the impliedness of it is, what can I do to help with that? What, what could I do that would distract from that? I don't want to do that. So it's coming with this very humbling nature of, you are this all-powerful great God who is a loving father. How do I approach that? How do I not ruin your name in the eyes of other people? So this opening verse is setting up quite a lot. It's, it's, it's even linking to the idea of honoring your mother and father from the Ten Commandments. 
Jesus is reminding us to honor our heavenly Father as well. So the opening verse is setting a pretty big stage for us. Then we move to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this petition is all about God's continuing work here on earth. Our website, in our preamble to our mission, we have this statement. We believe God is actively engaged in our world, redeeming, restoring, and renewing all things. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this verse. God's continuing work to renew all things. So we should get the idea that if this is what God wants, then it should be what we want as well. We should want to partner with God in the renewal of all things, in the redeeming of humanity, in the restoration of this world. And there's another interesting element to this verse here, the verb that is used, to be done. It, it means to be done, but its most basic literary translation is to give birth. It's the verb that is used a lot when, when you give birth. And I love that nuance that having that, that idea in your head brings to this verse. Because think about it. Then we would have something like, your kingdom come, your will be birthed. Your will be brought to life on earth as it is in heaven. I think that gives it just so much more depth, so much more emotion to it. Because it's not just a plan that's, that, that's going to be done, that, that's going to happen. It's a plan of life, for life. It's a plan that started and really, not started, but really kind of got kick-started with the birth of Jesus. That's when this plan really hits the ground running. And it's a plan that God wants to continue to bring to life around us each and every day. And a plan that we should want to partner with God to bring to life each and every day. So that's, that's the second petition. Third petition we get in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now this petition is all about putting our trust and faith in God. It harkens back to the time when the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness. There was no food around. So what did God do? Gave them a source of food. Sent them manna. This bread cake thing manna. Now what is fascinating to me, I think the most fascinating thing about the whole manna narrative is that it was a provision that was meant for a single day, day by day. The people were not meant to save it, to store it, or to hoard it. If they did, it would mold and be bad before they could use it. It was meant for them to help get them in the habit, the understanding of putting their trust in God every single day. Just think about it. If you have food in the ground, you pick up some to eat. This food might not be there tomorrow, right? So wouldn't I want to grab a little extra for tomorrow? God's saying, no, don't do that. If you do that, I'm going to make it so it goes bad and you get sick eating it. It's going to be there tomorrow. You just have to trust. You have to go against your instinct to not hoard and plan for tomorrow. Trust God every single day. It was meant to build their trust. It was meant to build their faith. 
That's something that we have to do every single day, right? We have to continually trust God every single day. And the phraseology of this word is kind of interesting. This idea of daily bread, this is really the only time in the New Testament this phrase is used. And, I mean, we translate it this way because, you know, hearkening back to the manna story. But in its simplest wooden translation, this verse would be something like, give us the bread that is knownly necessary and only sufficient for this day. Think how powerful that is. Just this idea of continual dependence, continual trust. Give us only what we need for today. And then tomorrow, I will get up and I will pray the same thing. Give me what I need for today. The next day, give me what I need for today. And continue and continue. There is something so powerful about trusting God in these small little things every single day. Every day it becomes a new miracle. Every day it's a new exercise in faith, in trust. That's verse 11. Now we move on to verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven those who de- are debtors. All right, so how many of you growing up learned it, show of hands, knew this as debts and debtors? And how many normally say trespasses and trespassers? Who are debtors? Who are trespassers? Debtors. Okay, how about half? Trespassers. Ah, oh, heretics. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> so this difference comes, so the Lord's Prayer is recorded twice. It's recorded in Matthew and Luke. Matthew uses debts and debtors. Luke uses trespasses and trespassers. So that's where the big difference comes in. <laughs> um, now I lost my spot. Okay, here we go. So today we're going to talk about debts because, because we're Matthew. So this petition is all about forgiveness. It's about accepting forgiveness, getting forgiven, and handing out forgiveness, forgiving others. Now this word here, forgiveness, did it, oh, oh, okay, don't, don't look at that yet, don't look at that yet. This word here, forgiveness, in its most literal term means to cast away, to throw off. In legal terms, this is the legal word for divorce, to completely blow up and separate. So now we get to her. So think of this as us, a visual representation of our debts or our sins. God is literally throwing them off of us. Just imagine how excited, like the zeal, the excitement, the fervor she has. That is how God is casting off our debts, throwing off our sins. And so this is how we should be forgiving other people, literally picking up their sins, picking up their their wrongnesses against us and casting them off of them with that excited, just fervor face. Look at that. I want you to think of her every time you, you, you feel like you need to forgive someone or you need forgiveness. Like, picture this. This is the excitement, the power, the passion in forgiving. Throwing off burdens. And I would argue this petition is really at the heart of the Lord's Prayer because, we're going to jump ahead a few verses, to the coda at the end of the prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, in all honesty, we could spend two weeks or more on this set of verses, because there is so much theological stuff in here that we would take a long time to unpack. But for us, I think what is most significant is its placement. 
why does Jesus choose to say this here, immediately after telling us how to pray? This seems like a weird follow-up to that. Well, I think it's focusing our instructions on prayer. It's giving us a mindset. Forgiveness can only happen with God's help. We naturally do not want to forgive, right? Forgiving is really, really hard. We naturally, we want our pound of blood. We want our pound of flesh, right? That's just how we naturally are wired. So we can only become people of forgiveness with God's help. And that has to start with prayer. The heart of prayer should be continually asking for forgiveness for us, accepting this graceful forgiveness of God, but also asking for strength, for the ability, for the willingness, but most of all the strength to forgive others. That can only come from God. That can only come from God who has forgiven us everything. That's the only way we can forgive anything, is to ask for help from God. Because through the blood of Jesus, we've been forgiven every debt, so why would we not want to forgive the smaller debts around us? That's why we're continually praising God. That's why we're continually praying to God. Sorry, I, I went off script there and completely lost my spot. Such a good spot. But yeah, the, the idea, we've been forgiven. It is our privilege and our duty to reflect that forgiveness to others. It's tough, but that's why it's centered here in the Lord's Prayer. Continually ask for the strength to forgive. That brings us to verse 13. As we close out, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this petition is all about recognizing our natural tendency towards sin. It's about understanding the human condition and just how broken it is. It's our way of recognizing that we can't even begin to think about walking down the path to righteousness on our own. We can't even think about taking that first step without God, without the grace of Jesus. So this is asking God to help shelter us from temptation, a temptation that we will probably fail. It's asking God to help us there. It's asking God to not abandon us with the evil one. It's asking God to shelter us from evil. Now, when looking at the earliest manuscripts of this particular verse, some of them say just evil, so protect us from evil. Some of them say protect us from the evil one. It gets at the same idea, that we need to be protected. And this whole idea of temptation and the evil one should remind us of Jesus' temptation. I know, we keep coming back to, to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, I feel like, every few weeks. But it's such a key moment. Because think about it. After Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes down. You're my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. Massive high point. Immediately after, we're told Jesus is driven out into the desert by the Holy Spirit. So quite literally, it is God, through the Holy Spirit, leading Jesus to temptation. And what happens there? Jesus is tempted by the devil. Is God present there? Is the Holy Spirit present in this tempting? No. So quite literally, Jesus was led into temptation and not delivered 
from the evil one. Jesus did something we can't. But because Jesus did this, went through this, ultimately went to the cross, we don't have to. This is not something we have to do on our own. We can't do it on our own. Jesus handled it. Jesus defeated it. So we can ask for help. We need help. And we can be given help. Just constantly ask for it. Just be reminded we are not alone. Because going back to the very beginning, the first line of the prayer, we are the adopted children of God. And God will not abandon his children. So looking at the prayer as a whole, we get kind of roughly five things that prayer is. So prayer is talking with our Father and wanting to be as holy as God is holy. Prayer is lining up our hearts and desires with God's hearts and desires. Prayer is asking for what we need and practicing reliance and faith on God. Prayer is reflecting the forgiveness shown us, or is, is reflecting on the, the forgiveness shown us and strengthening us for forgiving others. And lastly, Prayer is recognizing our inability to choose good and asking for God's help in all aspects of our lives. That's a lot packed into five verses, is, right? There's, there's a, there's a, the Lord's Prayer is dense. But this is the structure, the framework Jesus laid out for us of how we should approach God, how we should pray. These are the elements Jesus has said are important enough to pray for. So for the next few minutes, let's do this. Let's practice and do this together. So I'm going to put up the Lord's Prayer line by line with the little summary caveat of kind of what the idea is getting at, and we will read the passage together, and then we'll give 30 seconds, a minute, to sit and think about these different elements. Sound good? Sound like a plan? Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Take a few moments to think about, talk with your heavenly Father, ask to be holy as God is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.
Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 